In short, any problem that I've ever had, drinking was pretty much involved. Didn't have a care in the world. And then, you know, found opiates. I think I really just had fear of getting sober. I think that was my, like, I didn't know how to live any other way. Drugs and alcohol were my solution. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Addiction Talk. We have a very special guest with us today. We have Vic Vela. He is a journalist and the host of a recovery podcast called Back From Broken. So thank you for joining us tonight, Vic. Thank you, Joy. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, one thing I think is very interesting about your story, and I want to get straight into it, Vic, is, you know, many times as a journalist, you're telling other people's story. But now through your podcast and even being with us here tonight, you are finally sharing your story. What made you go from journalists telling other people's stories to feeling, you know what, I need to come out from behind the scenes and share what's been going on in my own life? You know, that's a really good question. I, I And I think, you know, it, I think it started about three or four years ago when I first had the idea for Back From Broken. And I, and I was so excited about it. I called my news director while she was on maternity leave. Uh, and I said, I have this great idea for a podcast. I just want to do a show about recovery. And I want to do it on recovery. So I was thinking, how could I use my expertise as a journalist? someone who is on the air, who, who asks people questions, who, who, who spent a life 20 plus years in journalism, at, you know, knowing how to talk to people and asking questions, along with my expertise, as, so to speak, as someone who is addicted to heavy drugs for a long time. Um, and I didn't want to do just, you know, there's plenty of really good reporting out there from journalists on the opioid, opioid epidemic and things like that. There's incredible, hard-hitting investigative reporting, but I didn't want this to just be reporting. I wanted, uh, I wanted people to hear my story and the stories of our, of our guests because I think it's really powerful uh, whenever someone can share the pain that they've gone through, and others hear that, and it inspires them to to, to live a better life. And since I've been open about my own struggles, Joy, like in terms of cocaine addiction, and we'll get into all that today, um, and and some of the consequences that, that came of that, I can't tell you how many emails I get, how many DMs on social media I get from total strangers saying, thank you for telling your story. It's helped me understand what my son is going through or what my partner is going through. Or, or I hear my own story in your story, Vic. There's nothing more powerful than that. Absolutely. I think when you, you can be so candid and be open. And so let's dig into your story because during the time of you being a journalist, you said you had a 20 plus career, 20 plus year career, you were battling a cocaine addiction. Take me back to when this first started for you. Well, I, my love affair uh, with cocaine began uh, right around the time when my journalism career was taking off. Uh, uh, I was, uh, I, you know, I had a lot of talent as a young person and in college, and, and I was hired right out of college to, to be a sports anchor for a TV station, an NBC affiliate in the state of Texas. Um, and, you know, 
you kind of get a little ego around that, right? Your, you know, your your face is on a billboard or on a bus stop or something like that. And you're on the 10 o'clock news and you're interviewing the owner of the Dallas Cowboys and things like that, right? Um, well, it was around that time that, that I really noticed that cocaine um, became sort of a partner for me. Um, in, in which I, I, when I would first do it just on the weekends, it's kind of like what a lot of, how a lot of addiction starts. You'll do it on a Friday or Saturday night when you're out with your friends, you're going to the bars. Well, then pretty soon I just loved doing it so much and how it made me feel that Friday and Saturday turned into Thursday, Friday, Saturday, turned into Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, pretty soon I'm doing cocaine every day. And, um, I'm doing it before I go on the air. Um, so I would, you know, go into the makeup room in the newsroom, you know, put on my tie, put on my makeup and then just do some cocaine off the off the sink and then uh, go on the air. And, and no one was none the wiser. Um, and, you know, when when you when you when it gets to a point, Joy, where you where you are doing it every day, it doesn't matter what it is. That's a problem. Right. And of course, at that age, you know, gosh, I was like 23, 24. You couldn't tell me I had a problem. You know, when you're at that age, you're invincible uh, or so you think. And and also, how can I have a problem? I, I just uh, uh, did a story on the Dallas Cowboys or I'm, I'm hosting the 10 o'clock news. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. Right. Hmm. So, so that's how it was for me. And and um, and, and once that drug just got it's got its hooks in me it was it was all over but the shouting Mm -hmm. no so you know what I think is so deep Vic as you're telling your story that here you are before the evening news before you're doing the news and you're doing a line at your job and nobody has a clue was anybody even aware that anything was going on do you think people started to suspect or were you so good at hiding it that people didn't realize that you're doing drugs right in the bathroom you know, people who a lot of people who have who have uh, gone through addiction like I have uh, have have a similar story in that you get to be really good at it and you get to be good at deceiving others and and manipulating others into thinking that you don't have a problem. I'll give you a good example. Like, you know, um, at my best, I could be a charismatic person and someone who's 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 full of life and telling jokes and, and, and being funny. I would do that with friends. Like we'd go out to happy hour and I'd be telling jokes and have a few drinks. And then I would always say bye on a high note uh, before I did the drugs, before I went and did it and, you know, uh, took part in sort of the underground world. That way they saw me at my best. Right. And so when they go back and report back to their friends or other co-workers, Vic is just a fun guy to hang out with and go get a few beers with, right? Because I knew when to say goodbye to them because I didn't want them to see anything else that was going to happen the rest of the night. The rest of the night is when things really get bad, where I'm either at the bars all night, dipping into the bathroom to, to do cocaine all the time, or staying up all night by myself or with a friend till five or six o'clock in the morning, very few people saw that side of me. And so, and so when you only, and there was a purpose behind that, I only wanted people to see 
the person I wanted you to see. Wow. So you were able to hide that, like you said, like you leave functions, people had no idea. And from what I'm understanding about your story, Vic, this went on for 15 years. So for 15 years, you're hiding that you're doing, you know, cocaine and you're this successful journalist. Was there a point when you started to realize things were getting out of control? Oh, gosh. I mean, every step along the way over those 15 years, there were red flags. Um, You know, I would get into arguments with with a drug dealer. I would get into violent situations with a drug dealer where I owed him a lot of money and he beat me up and pointed a gun at my face. That's that's a pretty big red flag right there when you are are in a physical altercation where violence is happening, where guns are pointed and you're involved. That's a pretty good sign that life is not going the way it should for you. Right. Um, But even then, those consequences don't matter. And I think that's something that that is another common thread, Joy, when it comes to people in addiction. Like if you're a judge, you can threaten to lock someone up behind bars for the rest of their life all you want. It doesn't matter unless they're ready to stop. Right. Mm -hmm. Consequences. You'll see people who rack up 20 DUIs in their lives. It doesn't matter. They know what the consequences are. It's the disease. You can't just like throw the disease in jail. So uh, getting back to my story, um, you know, there you, you could really just have like a checklist of the things that were falling apart in my life. And, you know, was my career suffering? Well, yes, because I lost jobs because of my drug use. Check. Were my finances suffering? Well, yeah, I was uh, I wasn't paying my bills. I was getting sent to creditors. Uh, I had to go through bankruptcy just to revive it. Check. Because I was spending money on cocaine instead of rent and my car payment. Was did your health suffer? Check. You know, I in 2006, I I tested positive for uh, HIV, um, which was a big hit in my life, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, you know, these are the consequences over a 15 year period uh, that um, just got worse and worse. And then, you know, finally, in those last couple of years, it just got harder. It got, you know, as you get older, things get harder anyway, but it got harder hiding my addiction, you know, because I would literally have to hide behind dumpsters to go smoke crack when I was covering the, the, the state capitol and covering politics. You know, I'm in a suit and tie smoking crack behind a dumpster. I mean, this is just what I did. Right. And ultimately, and we'll get into the good part in terms of the recovery part, because that's the part I really like talking about. But ultimately, for me, it wasn't so much a rock bottom. It was a series of life events that each were a rock bottom. And the the primary motiv- motivating factor behind me to getting sober was exhaustion. Mm. I was just physically and mentally exhausted from living that way. I couldn't imagine waking up the next morning and going through all of that again. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, Vic. So even as you're talking through this, just the way it impacted your life, you said you're out here interviewing maybe the governor or politicians, and then you're in a dumpster with a suit and tie doing crack 
It ended up impacting your health. You talk about an HIV diagnosis. All of these things were going on. And you said, even for people who are going through that, it's still hard knowing that you need help and deciding to get help. Why do you think when you were going through all that, you had a gun pulled to your head, you know, a gun pulled on you by a drug dealer, you know, you have these health scares and health concerns that that come about as a result of this. Why do you think that's so hard for some people to realize you have a problem, but to say, I need help? Because I know somebody's listening to this saying, hey, that may be me, but I'm not ready. That's a, such an important question. And it's a great question. And it's one of the, the, the really the maddening things around addiction that you hear from so many mo- mothers and fathers who just want to shake their kid and say, why are you doing this? Right. Or, you know, I, I, you got to stop. You're begging and pleading with your loved ones to stop living this life. Uh, and, 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 and any rational person who's thinking, uh, you know, of sound mind, you would think that that would register, but that's the grip that the disease has on us. Like we become what I always try and tell people when they're seeing their loved one at their worst and they're acting in ways that, that they would never ever act before, I would say, you know, that's don't don't be don't take this too personally, because that's probably not your loved one talking. That's that's the disease talking. That's the drugs. Um, You know, not not that when you just stop doing drugs, you automatically become a great person. That's not how it works. But that is the first step in a long process, which can be a very beautiful process Mm -hmm. and a very revealing and very spiritual process of recovery. When, when you finally say, I've had enough, I surrender. And I think I also, it's important to say that when you finally reach a point where you say, I surrender, you're not, you're not saying I quit. You're not giving up. Surrendering to the fact that you have a problem is the first step in getting better. Mm-hmm. And when you just finally say, I have a problem and I need help. I guarantee you're just going to feel a huge weight off your shoulders just from doing that. And that's a very, very brave thing to do. It's a very courageous thing to do. And so if people are struggling to get to that point, I understand. I, I've been there. Uh, but I, and I hope that in sharing my story and, and in hope in sharing others uh, from my podcast and for, from what Addiction Talk is doing, that other people can say that can see for themselves that it really is okay to admit that you have a problem and that you need help. No, I think that's so huge. And, you know, I want to go back. I know we talked about this being a 15 year journey with you and the impact on different things in your life. You talked about um, just your health. How did it start to take a toll? I just want to kind of go through some of the the ways that it started to impact you. Um, You talked about cocaine, but then you switched into using crack. Tell me how that happened and the health impacts that started to happen. Oh, sure. Well, let, uh, let me back you up even a little more. Uh, be, um, so when I was, um, it wasn't just cocaine over a 15 year period. I, I really, whatever drug you gave me, I was doing. So, um, and, you know, oftentimes I was smoking meth. Um, you know, I, I'm gay and, and there's a certain uh, uh, a sort of an underground of the gay community, which is a party in play, so to speak, where, 
it's pretty common for, for men to uh, smoke a bunch of meth and to have sex with other men. And a lot of times that that it's that can lead to very dangerous situations that you would put yourselves in, you know, sharing needles, sharing pipes and things like that. Um, the, the where it really first uh, started impacting my health was when in 2006 I started to get uh, I was sick. Uh, you know, it was the, it would be like the middle of the summer and I was the only person who uh who had like the flu i didn't know what it was i was just always sick and tired and i was getting these bizarre rashes on my body and i was having these skin issues and i didn't know doctors didn't know what was going on um until one doctor who knew my who knew my life and my lifestyle and knew some of my background he knew that i was a heavy drinker and drug user and he just flat out asked me when's the last time you got tested for hiv and as soon as he asked the question, mm. I knew I knew that's what it was. Um, and sure enough, the, the the test came back positive. Not only did it come back positive, Joy, um, my th- there's two there's a there's two measuring sticks that you use with to examine HIV. One is what's called the viral load, which manages the uh, the amount of virus that's in your blood. And another one is your is your CD4 count or your T cell count, which which counts the number of healthy cells that is basically your immune system. And when I got those test results back and I went and saw an HIV specialist, uh, my viral load was through the roof and my T cell count was nearly depleted to a level that was borderline AIDS. And so it wasn't just HIV. It was I, I very, if, if this had gone on for another month without getting help, without going on meds, uh, I would have had full-blown AIDS. Um, so that was the first big hit to my health. The second point question you brought up about going from cocaine to smoking crack, um, I had been doing cocaine daily for so long, probably at that time, let's see, this would have been about 2012, 2013 now, fast forwarding. I, w- I had been doing cocaine daily so much you know, snorting it, that I did a lot of damage to my nose. I was getting nosebleeds and things like that. And I went and saw my doctor and he, and he did it. He, 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 he checked it out. He said, you got to stop. You have to stop doing this drug. You're going to destroy your nose. And so again, it goes back to anyone in sound body and mind and reason would stop what they're doing. Right. But when you're in the throes of addiction, you what you hear is that you you just need to do it a different way mm-hmm. <laughs> so so that's when i just started smoking crack and and um you know and that what that drug does to you it's it's just you know it's a hell of a thing the the mania uh the the sketchiness the paranoia you know, uh, thinking that there's people outside the window who are trying to get you, you know, the proverbial black helicopters flying overhead, right? Like, you know, I wouldn't wish that lifestyle on anyone. And knowing that I lived that way for a very long time, um, uh, it's sad to look back on, but at the same time, I'm grateful because if it weren't for those experiences, it wouldn't have led to my recovery. And if it weren't for my recovery, I wouldn't be the person who I am today. Mm-hmm. I think that's very powerful. Even you just sharing that and Vic, something you said really touched me because I wonder when, you know, when the doctor said, did you need to get tested for HIV? 
Do you equate that to your drug use? Do you believe that played a role when you look back over the impact? Oh, there's there's no doubt. And there's really no way of knowing, you know, did I contract the virus through sharing needles? Did I contract it because I was doing drugs all night and and having sex with, with someone? I mean, any of those things could have been true. It's also, um, and, and who knows how long I had had it because, you know, it, it, considering that I was at, at borderline AIDS when I was diagnosed, chances are I had contracted it a while back, right? Um, none of those behaviors that led to that diagnosis those things that 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 lead uh, to contracting the virus, none of those things are are in my uh, are things that I do sober. I guess is probably the best way to say it, right? Like when I'm sober and in recovery, I'd like to think I'm a responsible person. Uh, but when you do drugs every day, like I did, you're a lot of times you're gonna kind of uh, struggle with things, uh, ethics, things are, that are right or wrong, morals, right? Um, and just taking care of yourself, right? It's actually amazing joy that I even um, took my uh, uh, anti, anti, anti-retroviral medication every day. I had to take that every day to keep the virus at bay. If I didn't, I wouldn't be alive today. I did that while still maintaining a daily drug habit, which to me says that there was always something inside of me. There was always this little person inside of me, this little angel looking out for me that was protecting me, that there was always something inside of me that wanted to be better. Um, And and I did it by God. I I took my medication every day. I may have been smoking crack every day or meth, but I, I was also taking my medication every day. Thank God. Wow. So when you were in this and you're doing the, you know, you've been diagnosed, you're taking your antivirals. I think that, you know, just thinking of that, that you are still doing the drugs, but also taking the medication to save your life, you know, at the same time, but it wasn't enough to stop it. What was that moment? What was it that let you say enough is enough? I can no longer do this. I know you said exhaustion was a part of it, but was there some moment that made you say now is the time. Well, I can tell you the last year of my my active uh, addiction years uh, was was a very dark period. I um, in 2014 um, in December in the same month, really, um, my a guy who I was in love with, uh, we, he broke up with me because he was tired of all the heavy drugs. Um, and then at that same time, I got laid off. Uh, that wasn't through any fault of my own. At the time, I was working for a newspaper conglomerate, and they were, you know, newspapers were having difficulty with uh, financial difficulty. But still, losing your job is losing your job. It still sucks. And it was the holidays, right? Like, and I had a daily crack habit. Like, this was a very dark uh, Christmas. Um, also, around. The, there a couple of times, Joy, prior to um, me getting sober, I, I overdosed. You know, I don't remember a lot of those things. I just remember bits of being in a hospital and asking what happened. And they said, you overdosed. You know, I would I would take very dangerous combinations of 
uh, something of the, uh, like a speedball where you're uh, taking cocaine with some sort of downer like uh, morphine or, or opioids, you know, Oxycontin, that kind of stuff. Um, that's killed a lot of people because it, it, when you get the, when you get the recipe just right, it's a, it's a euphoric high, but nine times out of 10, you're not going to get that recipe right. And you're probably going to overdose. And that's, that's what happened with me. So getting back to your question. So all this stuff is happening over many, many years. And I built up a lot of wreckage, financial friendships, relationships. Um, it was January 24th, 2015. And I'm laying in my bedroom and I just smoked my last crack rock. I didn't have any more drugs because the drugs always run out, <laughs> which is, which is a problem when you're an addict. Um, and I was, my little dog was laying next to me and I'm just sitting on the floor in my bedroom. It was, I don't even know, three or four in the morning. And I'm just listening to the, some really sad ballads in my, in my, um, on my phone and through my headphones. And I'm just playing them on a repeat. And I'm just thinking about how I wish I could just start over and how I just didn't want to, to have to go through this again tomorrow. And I was just crying. I was crying and I didn't have anything to lose. So I decided to call someone at that time. And it was a guy who I had met through a previous attempt to get sober. It didn't last very long, <laughs> but I did make that attempt once and I still had his number. It was also someone who was in recovery from crack cocaine addiction. Now, mind you, it was three in the morning. Mind you, it had been well over, I don't even know how long since we even spoke. Who knows if this is this guy even had the same number or, ha or deleted my number or if he was even going to answer. But I didn't have anything to lose. So I called and he picked up on like the first ring. Wow. And, and the first words out of his mouth were, hey, Vic, how's it going? And then I just lost it and I started crying. And I said, can you take me to a meeting tomorrow? And he said, sure. And um, uh, sure. And that was, that was the last time I got high. Um, and, and he came the next morning. I was, I was in rough shape uh, to be sure. Uh, there was, he had an orange waiting, a, a little orange waiting for me in his car because he figured I needed some vitamin C and something to eat besides uh uh, you know, gin, uh, <laughs> which is pretty much all I was drinking. Um, and I went to my first meeting, um, uh, not my first one, but it was the first one, uh, where I really started to take my recovery, uh, seriously. Um, you know, even then I, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I don't remember how much I thought, I don't remember if this was going to be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to stay sober. Or if it was going to be like one of those things where I was like, maybe I'll just, you know, take a break, you know, that'll be a nice break, you know, get a week or two sober, then I'm feeling better. Then I'll try and moderate. And I thank God I didn't go down that road because I just took it one day at a time. It's the old cliche. And um, I listened to people. I met new friends. I went to meetings. I heard the stories of others who were just like me. And there's so much power in that. There's so much power in that. 
And, you know, here it is six and a half years later. And, and, you know, I'm still here talking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Quite a story, you know, Vic. And I wonder, you know, as you look back on that, even just telling it again, I I can only imagine the emotions um, that it brings up. But just to know that he answered that phone. Oh, man. It's still it really does. It's amazing. I've told that story uh, a lot. Um, And every so often it'll still choke me up like he answered the phone, Um, you know, and you know what? There's been times where I've I've answered the phone for others. Right. And so it's giving back like, you know, um, I, I don't know if. Not really thrilled about someone calling me at midnight, but you know what? Um, you know, neither was Batman. <laughs> so you got to take that call mm-hmm. because that was me. That was me one time. And, and you know, that's that's the whole cycle of recovery. It's not like I go through the 12 steps and, okay, I'm done. I'm out. Peace. Right. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, recovery is, is the giving back. And, and, you know, it's funny, like I'll, I'll sometimes take phone calls from people who are struggling and they'll be almost apologetic for, for calling. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll say like, Oh, I'm sorry to be a burden. I, I know you have a lot going on. And I always tell them to stop. Like, you know, I should be thanking you because you are helping my recovery. Mm-hmm when you call and you tell me about what you're going through one, it reminds me of the hell that I went through and it reminds me to never go through it again. And two, it gets me out of my head. So like if I was in a bad headspace that day or I was having a bad day or I'm mad at my boss or my partner or, or traffic, right? Like all these things that cause a suffering, normal, regular people suffering every day. It, when I'm able to be there and help someone else, it's five, 10 minutes where I, I don't have to think about what's bothering me. And, and so helping that's, it's all about giving back. It's giving back and, and you got to do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I think about giving back and your podcast being a way for you to be able to give back, I can tell your story is touching people. Um, you know, when you think about, what this has meant to your life and how recovery has changed your life. And even just being able to give back through your story. What does that mean to you? Oh gosh. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's humbling. Um, you know, when, when, when someone comes up to me and they thank me for, for telling my story you know, it, it's it's amazing because I think of um, uh, if you would have told me while I was getting high, while I was smoking crack at four o'clock in the morning and had five dollars to my name, that one day I would be helping people, helping people change their lives. <laughs> There's no way. Right. There's no way. That's the beautiful thing about life. You know, I had lunch with another friend who's in recovery uh, just the other day, and his story was similar to mine. We both struggled in in, in high school. Uh, we both got hooked on drugs at an early age. Um, and, and he was telling me how proud he was 
that he was going to start a community college uh, and how excited he was to write his first paper and and to then, you know, use that to, to, to go into a four year school and, and get his degree, like things that he never cared about before. And I'm sitting across from him and I'm like, what a beautiful thing to have someone share. And he wouldn't be sharing this with me if I didn't tell him about my struggles. And isn't that an amazing thing when you can be there for someone and empathize with someone and a conversation starts because you you were able to put yourself out there? Um, even if they even if someone doesn't know the first thing about, you know, addiction may not be something they deal with or alcoholism, but everyone struggles with something. Every one of us is broken in some way or another, mm -hmm. right? Um, whether it's mental health issues or whether it's, you know, it doesn't mean, and, and by the way, when I use the word broken, it's never in a bad way. It's in a beautiful way. It's actually beautiful when I can talk to you about our, you know, or anyone else mm -hmm. and share that camaraderie, that empathy of, of some of the times where we were broken. That's, that's a relationship that's built that otherwise wouldn't be there. Right. Um, and, and it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a gift. It's, it's magical because especially in this day and age where it's hard to talk to people like, you know, we, we were just talking about ordering food on, on our phones uh, just before we, we, we jumped into the interview and how easy that's become. And then they leave the food outside the door so you don't even have to interact with the person who's dropping it off, right? You know, we, we date on apps, you know? We, we, we go out of our way to not have human contact. Mm. And when we do have human contact, sometimes we're arguing too much over things like politics and the things that divide us. So what a beautiful thing it is when you can share pain with mm. someone else. That's true. Yeah. And you know, one thing I think, Vic, too, as we round up your interview is that, um, one, this has been so, first of all, thank you for your transparency yeah. and all of that. It's just been tremendous and, you know, touched me and I'm sure many people will listen, but also you remind me of hope because if someone can go 15 years, there's somebody who thinks it's over for, it's been, I've been doing this so long, my life can never change. But when I look at you, Vic, what I feel is hope for someone who sees this or a family member who thinks it's been 15 years. Is there any hope? But after 15 years of going through this journey, you still found recovery. Yeah. And six and a half years now, you're in recovery and living a new life and, you know, doing all the things that you wanted to do and sharing your story. So if there were any final words, Vic, that you could leave with a family member who hears your story or someone who's struggling, what would that final message that you'd want to say to them be? The lead up, the question there, you said it best, that word hope. Anytime I say the word hope, if I'm tweeting or I'm on Facebook, I always I, I always uh, capitalize the H. Uh, hope is the, is such a strong word to me that I capitalize it regardless of where it falls in the sentence. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think it's that, 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 that I, there have been times where I have sat in meetings and I'll listen to someone's story and I'll think to myself, 
How in the world is that guy still alive? How in the world is that guy? So like, I'm a bad case. That person's really a bad case. Like if that person can get better, all of us can get better. Mm. There is true. I have heard stories you wouldn't believe of people who have gone through prison, who have gone, who have, who have taken, uh, accidentally taken the lives of others, right? Things, mm. the severe, significant consequences of people, uh, of, of drugs and alcohol. The, but then they, years later, they're sober and they're better. Not perfect, but better. And I think that's the one thing I would try and say is don't ever give up on your on 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 your loved ones who are struggling. It's not the same as um, enabling. Right. And that's a whole other conversation, you know, and that's an important conversation. Uh, you know, at what point do do you cut the cord, so to speak, uh, where your help might be a hindrance? Right. If you're just facilitating in someone else's demise. But. Hope is never up for debate. You could always, always be there for someone and let someone know that you love them and that when they're ready, you'll be there for them in in whatever capacity you need them to be. I know drugs and alcohol can, can, the, the impact it could have on parents and loved ones. Like I've always said that my, obviously my addiction was hell for me it was really hell for my parents. Mm. Um, but, but now they have a sober son. Mm. And, and, and so that day is possible for, for any of you out there. Um, you know, no matter what you've gone through, you know, and that's the beautiful thing about life. You just never know, right? Take it one day at a time make sure you always tell someone you love them. And then one of these days they're going to surprise you and say, mom and dad, I'm ready. And, and uh, you know, I believe that with all my heart that, that any one of us can get help and any one of us can get better. Well, that is a powerful note to end on. Any one of us can get better. Thank you, Vic, so much for joining us and sharing your story. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Addiction Talk, and we hope to see you back here again soon. Thanks, Ed.